The Storycast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com/stories. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, all on your mobile device. So support the show and enrich your mind at audibletrial.com/stories. Across the pond, one might know him as Henny Penny. Here in the U.S., that flimsy paperback you read as a child probably named him Chicken Little, or Chicken Lickin', or Chicken Cluck. The childish folktale, exploring themes of hysteria and a misguided sense of an imminent doomsday, actually goes back more than 2,500 years. As the tale modernized for children in Denmark and Scotland, and eventually to the Americas, painted by nursery rhymes and Disney cartoons, the fable remained true to its message, a warning to not believe everything one thinks or is told. And furthermore, to not become mired in assumptions, but to keep one's eyes open to the many truths and reality around oneself. So, as Chicken Little assumes the fallen acorn means the world is coming to an end, he frantically incites mass hysteria in the animal kingdom, fear-mongering mass pandemonium, until true disaster actually strikes, when fox locks offer shelter and eats the lot of them. And all the while, the sky stands bright and strong as ever. Because sometimes in life when it seems like everything is crashing down, it's actually not. And in our panic, we might just get eaten alive by something else entirely when we let our guard down. So that's the trick. In knowing when to trust what you believe to be true, when to act on what you hear, and when to look over your shoulder. This time on the StoryCast, the sky is falling. Chapter 1. Cooler Heads Will Prevail You've heard it all before, stories of war and peace. And maybe you've heard this one before. Sure you have. But until you really understand all the moving pieces, the ebbs and flows, the dynamite set with charges like pickup sticks, and the unforgiving boulders sent raging down mountainsides, you may not quite understand how low the sky fell one October. Because three men almost went to war one day, each man under the guise of protecting their own nation and flexing his own collective might in the process. Yes, three men almost went to war one day and almost destroyed the planet as we know it. And yet here we are, we who have lived to tell the story so far. The year is 1962 and the political climate was like that of a Rube Goldberg machine. You know those artistic feats of wacky engineering that you send the marble through? Maybe you played Mousetrap as a kid. After World War II limped to a halt, the international community was in a tightrope walk in an interconnected web of pieces like a domino effect ready to come crashing down. And it did all come down to the very survival of an ideology standoff, socialism versus capitalism. And at the very heart was Berlin. The core of Germany was split down the middle with a literal wall. To the east, the portal to communism in the USSR. To the west, the symbol of freedom, backed by the allied powers. But that free west was an island in an uncertain land. Even more uncertainty swelled from the decade-old arms race between Russia and America. Both nations lived and died literally by the idea of mutually ensured destruction, 
You shoot the nukes first at us, we fire back. We're both toast. It was the opposite of a duel. In a duel, whoever shot first survived. With nukes and computers and airplanes, everything and everyone is toast. It had been nearly 20 years since the development of the first nuclear weapons, and you better believe progress had been made, if that's what you convinced yourself to call it. So it was in mid-October of 1962 when John F. Kennedy, Nikita Khrushchev, and Fidel Castro faced off in the most catastrophic arena of diplomatic brains and military brawn the world has ever seen. And this was no threat of ordinary war, no battle with redcoats or bow and arrow, not a strike via smart bombs and isolated door-to-door -door ground attacks. At stake here was the very fate of the world, a battle of nuclear annihilation. Welcome to the Cold War, as in the weapons were cold for far too long, perhaps. If Berlin was the tip of the iceberg, the island of Cuba was an ice chunk floating along far too close to the ship. Backed by Soviet Russian might, Cuba had risen as a socialist island nation, breathing down the neck of the West. And what happened next all started with a response, both a literal and figurative reaction to the US's attempted but failed Bay of Pigs, an invasion in Cuba a year prior, and a response to America's strategic placement of missiles in Italy and Turkey and perhaps a response to the sheer magnitude of it all. By 1961, Russia had four intercontinental missiles aimed at the U.S. It's been reported that the U.S. had as many as 75 and growing. And for our stockpiles of nuclear weapons themselves, the U.S. had considerable advantage with around 27,000 to Russia's 3,600. It all started there. So let that sink in just for a second. Because most times, conflict boils down to why it started in the first place. The U.S. Air Force Lockheed U-2 was an ultra-high-altitude aircraft capable of flights pushing atmospheric limits of 70,000 feet. It was a plane you used to spy on the enemy. These planes crept along as high as our earthbound technology could manage to monitor areas below, providing photo reconnaissance for the military and the CIA. It was probably a flight like any other on October 15th, but when that day's film was poured over by specialists armed with magnifying glass, what it showed was troubling. Images of a secret construction of ballistic missile facilities in a remote region of Cuba. A site being serviced by around 3,400 Soviet soldiers on a socialist island nation under 100 miles from coastal Florida. And these missiles were estimated to be fully operational and fitted with nuclear warheads in under a week. The knowledge of the top secret site clearly gave the US the upper hand at that moment in time, but to what end? The very existence of the missiles and their warheads were a threat to America's existence. According to reconnaissance, there would soon be 36 medium-range ballistic missiles armed with 1,000-mile-range 3-megaton nuclear warheads, bombs with a strike capacity to equal 2,400 Hiroshima's. Let that sink in a little, too. Within 5 to 10 minutes, those payloads could kill 80 million Americans and destroy the majority of U.S. bases, including the bomber planes. What was going on in Cuba meant destruction of D.C. in mere minutes and just about every other U.S. city outside of Seattle right behind that. The missiles imposed a new international balance of power, 
surely an answer to America's placement of missiles across Eurasia, namely those in Italy and Turkey. The U.S. was already barking down the Soviets' back door. The Joint Chiefs counseled President Kennedy that the secretive arrival of these new missiles struck a new tone in the Soviet doctrine, that of a first strike that would provoke World War III. The very presence of the missiles was viewed as a destabilization of the mutually assured destruction band-aid, and it was widely viewed by advisors and specialists that if the U.S. allowed these missiles even as a flex of might, it would be an endless threat to safety and would destabilize diplomacy in the future. You see, even if the Soviets weren't intending to launch a first strike, this was all a bold move that would establish a dangerous precedent in pushing the U.S. harder to respond. But the plot thickens. It wasn't just about Cuba. The world was a delicate balance because if the U.S. invaded Cuba to destroy the missiles before they were operational, Russia would surely retaliate by finally attacking the West's stronghold in Berlin, throwing the balance of NATO powers into jeopardy, and surely provoking a world war anyway. But pure diplomacy was not a valid option. The nuclear warheads would be mounted on the missiles before the two sides could even finish talking. Either way, the Russians wanted to show that they could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, wherever they wanted, especially in a critical Soviet satellite country. The U.S. government went to work carefully calculating a response plan, attempting to avoid war at all costs, but also not pivoting to appear weak. It was an unprecedented nuclear confrontation requiring problem solving of epic proportions, even as the sky crashed down all around, but only figuratively for now. It was the ultimate war game with the very fate of humanity at stake. And to top it all off, word could not get out. Public pandemonium and panic was unacceptable to JFK, along with the fact that any leak would ruin the potential element of surprise. Meanwhile, back in the USSR, Khrushchev didn't know that the US knew about the missiles. For the Soviets, trying to keep up in the arms race, the missile move to Cuba was an attempt at power posturing, a fait accompli, a move to leave the US in the dark with no other option than to accept this new reality. The Kennedy team grew frustrated, angry, confrontational, emotional, debating and fighting over the seemingly two best options. A full invasion of Cuba, following drawn up and rehearsed plans long championed by hardline war hawks, or destroy the missiles with targeted air attacks. But the Kennedy team opted for a creative alternative. And it was this moment in the story, zoom in right here, this was the moment that humans flexed their might to fight to the death and hold on to the weight of the sky, to hold the sky in place. This is the moment where the story is told. This is the moment where our hearts and minds prove stronger than our might. Because Kennedy would call it a blockade. Quarantine was technically an act of war, so the guidelines said. A menacing fleet of US ships would create a wall in the sea around Cuba, requiring any Soviet vessels to stop and be boarded. Ships with civilians, food and supplies would be let through. Military crafts or those containing anything pertinent to military cargo would be forced to turn around. In doing so, Kennedy made a stand by throwing the ball into Khrushchev's court. It became his choice alone, whether to recognize the blockade or sail through. Kennedy didn't want to back the Soviets into so much of a corner that their only options were humiliation or retaliation. 
So the blockade was a powerful way of sending a message without firing a shot. And if the blockade failed, a quarter million US soldiers, hundreds of tanks, thousands of aircraft stood at the ready to launch a full invasion. The state of Florida was placed in a state of emergency as the military engaged in what they called a practice maneuver. As the military action surged, the press sniffed out the smokescreen and put pressure on the administration to open up about this strange buildup. So, on October 22, 1962, JFK's team announced a speech that evening on an issue of, quote, highest national urgency. Speculation arose in Moscow. They assembled their team, awaiting the U.S.'s next move in a collective guessing game. That evening, John F. Kennedy spoke to America, making the case for action warranted by offensive missile sites, characterizing Cuba as an explicit threat to U.S. security. He publicly announced the upcoming blockade of ships heading to Cuba the following day, making clear that if the ships continued past, further action would be justified, and that if any missile was launched, the U.S.'s core nuclear fleet of 66 B-52 bombers constantly in the air, and more than 500 others available, would launch their own nuclear warheads at Russian targets. In sum, returning the chess match to mutually ensured destruction. The blockade was a way to quickly act with resolve while not drawing first blood. It was akin to moving your pawn forward two spaces to get the game rolling. But if the blockade didn't work, the dreaded domino effect was clear. If a ship did not stop, the US would be forced to fire on it. The Soviets would likely retaliate by firing on a US bomber plane. So the US would then strike Cuba's anti-aircraft sites. The Soviets' next move would surely be to invade Berlin, giving the US the right to invade Cuba upon which time Russia would simply push the red button and the US would follow. JFK had struck first with words wrapped in military might, anteing up with all his options on the table, but passing to his opponent, giving Khrushchev the option to fold to avoid first blood. The blockade assured the Kremlin that the US had no plans for a preemptive attack on Cuba. JFK's actions meant, I am prepared to negotiate. The focus on Cuba graciously saved face for Khrushchev and put the spotlight on Castro's actions, and Cuba prepared. Castro contended furiously that any missiles on Cuba were for defense. A quarter million Cuban soldiers lined the coastal trenches, ready to fight for their homeland, under their rallying cry, Socialismo o muerte, socialism or death. And little did the U.S. know that the Soviets already had a short-range nuclear capability in place, a tactical weapon ready for the battlefield that would have ambushed tens of thousands of invaders. The evening before the blockade, Khrushchev publicly condemns it as an inexcusable act of piracy and heads to the opera to see Boris Gudnov. The story of Tsar Boris, who faces the need to rid himself of another Tsar. Was it a message? That night, Khrushchev listened as the opera singer portraying Boris sang of having a tormented soul, fear within him, over whether or not to destroy his adversary. The actor himself was actually an American on tour, whom Khrushchev requested to dine with after the show. And together they toasted to world peace. Was this perhaps another signal that the Soviets were prepared to negotiate? 
But even then, Kennedy's armada formed a ring of steel in the Caribbean Sea. As the blockade goes into effect the next day, Soviet vessels approach the quarantine at full steam ahead. Former Soviet ambassador to the US, Anatoly Dobrynin, would later describe the scene as he watched the TV screens, depicting Soviet ships a mere five to 10 miles away from the blockade as a high noon showdown from an American Western movie. U.S. destroyers are told to fire only on order directly from the White House. Four Soviet subs armed with nuclear torpedoes and out of communication with their Soviet powers are hunted at the blockade line. Suddenly, ships with military cargo begin to turn around while passenger and merchant ships continue through the blockade. Every soul paying attention breathes with a slight sigh of relief as the immediate situation diffuses, baby steps. But the crisis wasn't over. As the days went on, chaos ensued. Work on the Cuban nuclear missile bases continued, and then a war of words and speculation and demands and uncertainty and backdoor brokered deals from alleged Soviet spies and a fatally shot down US plane over Cuba and conflicting letters supposedly from the Kremlin. War is messy and everything that touches it Diplomacy inched back and forth as ebbs and flows of conflict often do. As all communication occurred over indirect, untimely, and unsecure public telegram services, urgent messages and negotiations between two world superpowers were printed on paper and driven between locations. But finally, on October 27th, not two weeks since the missile sites were discovered, a deal is negotiated. The Kennedy team strikes a deal with Khrushchev. The Soviets would withdraw their missiles in Cuba in exchange for a public announcement that the U.S. would never invade Cuba without direct provocation. And in addition, the U.S. missiles in Turkey and Italy aimed at the USSR would be quietly removed six months later so as to save face for U.S. sovereignty. And also constructed was a confidential Moscow to Washington telephone hotline. With this important step, future direct communication was ensured between the two superpowers, a vast improvement from telegrams and spy networks the Cold War was not over. Missiles armed with nuclear warheads still stood armed and ready, and still do. But giant leaps had transpired for mankind. To think outside the box, to have empathy for the opponent's stake, and to value direct communication. And even now, just 55 years out from our closest to nuclear Armageddon, the Cuban Missile Crisis lessons still continue today. The moral of the story, sometimes the sky is indeed falling all around us, but we have to discover ways to defy the odds at all costs, and at times, find a will to defy our nature. Realizing that at times, the entire mess around us can become an unstoppable machine mechanically set into motion with no one and everyone at the helm. The sky may surely be falling all around, but as long as there are good people making wise choices, we keep finding ways to fight with a fierceness, to keep the sky over our heads. And every single moment that the heavens around us stay in place for one more moment is another moment in time for the human race to understand that lesson even more. Chapter 2. 
space, stuff. What will be your legacy? What will you leave behind? The things you've accomplished, the people you've loved, the experiences you've shared. That's about it. Because amassing wealth and things can be nice for a bit, but you can't take it with you. The real wealth is in your story, your history, which becomes someone else's future. If you've ever had a grandparent or parent die or move into a home or otherwise, you've had to experience that wretched cleaning out of a lifetime of memories and stuff and boxes and heaps and drawers, things important, or once believed to have importance or that would otherwise find their place, now seemingly lost in a purgatory of stuff, where certainly one soul's treasure becomes another's trash. As citizens of the earth, part of our history, part of our legacy, is a sea of stuff, discarded and forgotten, and floating above our heads. One night in January of 1997, Lottie Williams of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was walking through the park with a couple of friends when they witnessed a huge fireball nearby streaking across the dark sky. It was beautiful. The group watched in awe, a front row seat to a shooting star. Just a short time later, Lottie felt a tap on her shoulder, or at least that's what she said it felt like. In the dark park, she was startled. She ran, even. And eventually, she turned to find no one or nothing around, except an odd chunk of warped and melted debris about the size and weight of an empty soda can. Lab tests would later show that the object was a piece of a Delta II rocket that had launched an Air Force satellite a year prior. Lottie remains to this day the only person on Earth documented to ever have been struck by a piece of falling space debris, which is amazing because there are literally tons of it up there. Space travel leftovers, trash left behind orbiting our planet every second of every day as you walk your kids to the bus, as you drive to work, and as you drift off every night. We left it all up there, you and I. Researchers say that there are millions of pieces of orbital debris rocketing around us within the Earth's gravitational pull. More than 20,000 of these objects are larger than a softball, and they're each soaring independently at speeds of up to five miles per second. Many are sections of non-functioning or abandoned spacecraft and satellites, space mission debris, and other fragments that every nation with a space program has left behind for the past 60-odd years. Even flecks of paint moving at 17,000 miles per hour can damage a spacecraft. So in America, NASA and the DOD track every single observable piece of debris in orbit and adjust course as necessary. With so much junk blanketing our planet, there have been surprisingly few disastrous collisions. In 2007, China tested an anti-satellite missile to destroy one of its own adding more than 3,000 trackable pieces of debris into the space junk catalog. In 2009, a defunct Russian satellite collided with an American commercial satellite, destroying it and adding 2,000 more pieces. So what happens when the sky actually falls? While the Earth's atmosphere protects us from most of these bits and pieces by burning them up on re-entry, just as some actual meteorites slip through the cracks down to our planet, space junk can and will and does fall as well. When an old satellite fell towards the Earth and broke up in the atmosphere in 2011, your odds of being hit by its debris were 1 in 100 trillion, just as your odds of being hit by lightning were over 100,000 and a half times better at 1 in 60,000. So eventually, one way or another, 
the sky really is falling. There are thousands of large satellites and old spacecraft that will eventually fall to the Earth at speeds of several miles per second. Just as in 2007, when the pilot of an Airbus A340 carrying 270 passengers witnessed a piece of what would be discovered to be a Russian satellite as it soared to the Earth within five miles of the aircraft, so fast that it created a sonic boom as it soared past. And if enough time passes, scientists believe our planet could face what is named the Kessler Syndrome, a hypothetical model where a chain reaction of exponentially increasing collisions of space debris will create an infinite blanket of debris, a domino effect that will eventually encapsulate our planet with microscopic particles, cutting Earth off from safe travel into space. So where's the story? The story in space litter, in a graveyard orbit? The answer lies in discovering the truth one can find and what we leave behind, just as a boat leaves a wake in the sea behind it. The very forward movement of life, in spite of everything it brings, life leaves things behind. And aside from being good stewards of our own planet for our own lifetime, we must consider the future of the planet in 100 years or 1,000 years or more. So just as the space industry today aims to find ways to remove existing and limit future space junk, we Earthlings can do our part on terra firma to take care of our own Earth junk for the generations to come. Words to live by. What goes up must come down. Whether you're a rocket scientist or just you and I, Chapter 3, As Above, So Below This song, Thumbs and Fingerprints, is the seventh track in our Season 2 album, and if you want the full album all to yourself, it's all yours at support.storycastpodcast.com. Every word 
The StoryCast was written and produced by myself. I tweet at Russell Silva. This week you heard music from Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, British Sea Power, M83, Ludovico Ionati, Senin, and myself. The StoryCast continues at the end of April with another chapter of life that tells the story of us through a common thread. So until next time, think, feel, and wonder a little bit more. The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to storycastpodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks.